welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome to Searching for Mana, Lara Gilman, co-lead, Iwaka Um We are delighted to have you and Iwaka on the show and looking forward to covering um, the journey of Iwaka and then also coming up to um, current time, which is 2020 June, where um, of course you're um, launching this new product line of iWalkers, uh, which is all in the press. So really excited to deep dive into that. Um, we have also on the show uh, for this episode, uh, Mimi Nguyen, who is uh, the lead of Mana Labs. So uh, our search business and Mimi is at the forefront of looking into research on the future of work and collaboration uh, and is doing that with Imperial College. And uh, it just so happens that Mimi worked at Iwaka uh, back in 2014-ish time. I think when they were Series B uh, type of uh, phase. And so we thought it would be great to have all of us on the show so that we can... uh, discuss many things about the early journey, the journey now, see if there's some parallels, um, etc. So welcome onto the show, guys. Thanks. Hello. Thank you, Lloyd. Um, Laura, I um, have just obviously kind of done a broad introduction. Perhaps you could be so kind to introduce the audience um, to yourself and what you're doing with Iowa. Yeah, great. Um, and, and probably good to give context of Iwaka as, as well. Um, so Iwaka is a small business lender and um, I've been with the company for um, a little over two years now. Um, I joined kind of to just sort of help on some of their go-to-market with new products and ended up working uh, quite heavily uh, with the product team and then also on the BCR application. The outcome of that was uh, we got 10 million pounds um, from, from the BCR, which was fantastic to kind of start to, um, to drive some of our new product development. And, um, and now, and there's been a few initiatives in there. So um, our open lending platform, which is really about um, allowing our API to be uh, made available um, to more partners so that lending can really be brought to um, where customers are. Um, there's our no personal guarantee loan, which we saw as a really important step and, and even more important now um, that kind of uh, gives businesses the ability to, to, to take on finance without providing personal guarantee. And then, and then also um, I walk a pay is our, is our other product that we're, we're driving. And now I'm spending most of my day building and developing that product, which is all about bringing finance to the point of invoice. Thank you. And um, Mimi, perhaps you could um, explain to the audience, um, you know, when you were working at iWalker, um, how you would have described it and what the mission was. Yeah, so coming back to 
the last, I think, six years. I joined Avoca in 2014. It was, I think, completely different company uh, as a small startup. So it was 30 people back then, one floor in Soho. And for me, um, that time Avoca was just a very innovative fintech startup in London. So I came from Poland back then, and I was 23 coming from big organization from Accenture and, uh, and Boston Consulting Group. And I just heard this this buzzword startup, and I really, really wanted to work in one. So, uh, so I got an interview in Soho, and I saw this office with all these beanbags and, and pool table, and I was like, I'll do everything to work at Iwoka, to just have to, to just get the glimpse of that. Um, so I joined part-time during my MAs, and then later uh, as a full-time. And, and when being there, I just realized that um, looking around people sitting around me, I just realized that the power of Iwoka and the power actually of, of this fintech spirit is are the people who are creating products there, who are creating the, the, the innovation. And I was really impressed and, and proud that I, I, I was surrounded by, by such intelligent, motivated and driven people. And that actually led me later to this understanding of, of any um, any startups, uh, successful startups that behind every innovation, there is a team. And an innovation without um, implementation is just an idea on the paper. So you need the right people um, to, to deliver, to, to perform this implementation. And that led me later to, to actually my PhD right now when I uh, when I'm focusing mainly on trying to understand what is the make of the best team in which creativity can thrive, uh, and that's my PhD in Imperial College London. And it, it's very related back to that year because I remember we were, so I joined in Series A and we were releasing the Series B press release. And I actually had to Google what Series B means because like, oh, wow, like what even is Series B? And then there was this intro in the press release about the founders, Chris, VP from Goldman Sachs and, and James, uh, CTO, who had a PhD in physics from Imperial College London. And that was so impressive to me that six years later, I just followed that and I just did the same. So I'm doing a PhD in the Faculty of Engineering now. And um, so for me, I woke up back then was just a bunch of, of, of people that felt like family went on holidays together, that were so driven to, to deliver this innovation uh, in FinTech to, to challenge. The banks were always talking that the banks getting the loan was three months and we're trying to to, to do it in one day. And I think Lara can, can give us now a better actually overview of how it went uh, after. Yeah, cool. Um, I mean, it's really interesting to kind of hear you describe it in those in those early years, um, because I think um, a lot a lot has still resonated. Um, and, and you're right, we're much bigger now, so we're kind of more than 300. Um, and and it's a the team has kind of grown and grown to sort of help keep being that uh, those growth that growth rate and the and those demands. Um, and last year, you know, we funded uh, more than a billion. Uh, so we hit our cumulative target of more than a billion funded, which is which is pretty exciting. Um, and so I think what has though remained is very much a lot of the essence of what you're talking about. So uh, commitment to a strong team, kind of culture has been a really big part of of Iwaka and that culture being living and breathing. So as people kind of join, um, we, we wanna make sure that we keep adapting and, and learning how to kind of build 
build new products and, and services, as well as maintaining that those kind of early commitments to having great customer service, um, to being as accessible as we can be, um, to uh, being responsible in the in the fintech scene. So so yeah, this is it, it's it it probably would look a lot different, but I think I think the 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 core essence um, would, would still be there. Yeah, I remember we had the boards when every trust uh, pilot review was printed out and pinned on the board. I think right now it wouldn't fit, but it was like the, the very beginning and like every small review was like, whoa, this person gave a review. Um, and I think- so we, we, We've re-resurrected that actually. Well, before before lockdown, <laughs> we had um, we started putting trust pilot um, reviews all over the walls. So yeah, actually someone had, we, 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 we came back to that because it was so um, valuable. And now, yeah, it's the same. It's really important for us to hear from our customers and have that presence. And so that was kind of a big drive before, before we all went into lockdown. Um, and now we, we kind of do still kind of share those reviews and, and hear what customers are doing and make sure it's kind of really known across the business because that customer centricity point, um, yeah, it's, it's, you have to work at it and, and, and that's really remained a priority. Laura, um, what is the, you know, the joint, the team, the founders, your, purpose forget product lines for a second what is the purpose of iwalker and how far into that purpose um are you you know several years ago um lending to smes uh, was poor in the eyes of the founders and then through um talented team lots of fundraising lots of effort are we to a, a different phase where you think SME lending is good, but you want to improve it, or is it still a huge opportunity that you guys are driving into? This is a really good question and, and one we thought about a lot. So our our mission um, for a long time has been to fund one million businesses. And the reason for that is because we really wanted to ensure that that we focus on helping small businesses. Um, and, and that's the only way you can do that by, and so all of our products are still geared to like, how do we make this accessible even to, you know, the cafes and the corner shops as well as um, solicitors. And um, so we have a diversity in that. But your question is really interesting because I think you have to look at it over time when Iwaka started and where the world is now because it evolves. And where Iwaka started was, you know, kind of 2012, this was sort of the boom of, of lending 2.0. And the core of that was, how can we do what the banks do, but so much better? And, and that so much better was really about making it an online experience, um, creating that seamlessness, uh, you know, making, making it instant, automating as much as we could. So it was doing what the banks do, but then bringing it online. And we did that really well. You know, lots of other lenders, you know, did that, did that, did that really well, you know, as a whole sector developed um, in the UK, in the US, you know, globally. So then the question becomes, all right, we're now, you know, going to be on a, a decade later in, in a couple of years and and what's changed and I think that um, what's changed for us is it's not just about doing what the banks do and doing it better it's now starting to rethink you know what 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 do SMEs need and, and where is the problem these days and so that's kind of pinned by our our, our product ambitions our product ambition is around bringing finance when where when and where small businesses need it and and so if you think about that um you know, you're starting to see, and from us and from others, that that product innovation happen. So if you think about where, um, so originally it was, you know, you came to our website and, and you could get a loan and that's still the case. 
However, that's really, um, we've really pushed that quite far by introducing an API and being one of the few lenders in the market with a, with a lending API, and then pushing that further to sort of say open lending. It's not just that we have an API, we're actually opening that API so that we can onboard and, and provide um, partners a more customizable feature set. And that was kind of a big part of our kind of new product strategy. Um, and you know, this kind of when they need it. So how do we find those contextual moments? And that's where I walk a pay really is, you know, this isn't a product that banks do, it's a new product. And for us, it was really a problem led, you know, um, context where we sort of said, okay, people are, people are using our product to cover the cost of an invoice or to pay a supplier. Well, why would you have to be in that journey, leave and then come back? So we started to make that more contextual and that's really speaking to like the where, uh, or sorry, the when, like making it as contextual as possible. And so we're really trying to push ourselves to think beyond, you know, that sort of now old school thought of let's just do what the banks do and, and, and make it a little bit better and actually say, okay, cool. What is finance going to look like in the future? And, um, and with, and with um, I Walk the Bay, um, so specifically, it's, um, it's, it's why. Um, can you just detail that, please? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, because I kind of ran through it pretty quick. So I walk a pay is what, what we're doing is we bring finance to the point of invoice. Now, what does that mean practically? What happens today is um, a B2B supplier um, will, a supplier will send their customer an invoice. That invoice will often have payment terms attached to it, or they'll say, pay me now. Yep. This has been sort of a, uh, a kind of problematic structure, even though it's been around for you know, decades and decades and possibly centuries, in some ways it's a problematic sort of relationship in that the supplier is now exposed to the credit risk of their customer. And in the UK, we see the manifestation of that come into things like late payments or delayed payments or overdue invoices. And that credit risk is being held by the supplier. But that's not just it, it's not just the risk. On top of that, there's an element that that supplier needs cash flow to function. So you sort of have this unlocked cash that you can't really use because you're waiting for a supplier for your customer to pay you back. On the other side, the customer kind of recognizes, you know, they make these big purchases um, upstream of their value chain. And so often they'll have a really lumpy cash flow. So they'll be, you know, have this huge cash out and they haven't quite sold it on to their customer um, yet. And so they have this kind of cash flow problem. So what happens, supplier says, well, I need to get paid up front. And the buyer says, I need as much time as possible to pay you. That is a friction. Finance is a great solution for that friction. And that's kind of what I walk a pay does. We basically say, let your customers pay with I walk a pay. That means they will get 90 days to pay us in installments, which is a much easier way to manage your cash flow on the customer side, while you, the supplier, get paid in advance. And there, and because the buyer has opted to use this product, there's no risk to you. Yep. Basically, it's between us and the, and the customer now to pay us back. Yep. And so it's kind of a, a reinvention of, it sort of takes the best of invoice factoring and discounting as well as um, insurance and kind of thinks about it in a much more holistic way. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is big across all industries known as factoring, right? Um, in, um, in recruitment and headhunting, it's absolutely massive. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if that's a target market. Uh, but before you, we go into which ones this might service best, because um, it's probably across the board, Example being um, contractors mm -hmm. in recruitment are incredibly expensive upfront cost. Um, yep. They get paid. Let's give a crude example of a thousand pounds a day 
22 days a month. Um, so you can run the maths there. And often said recruiter is paying the contractor for a few months until let's say a bank pays the recruiter back. So we're talking there 70,000 pounds that you're upfronting on one person. So what tends to happen in our world is you'll go and get a factoring contract with um, a large bank or a, a factoring business. And we've had uh, fintech businesses that have addressed this, such as um, uh, market finance, for instance, yeah. right? And um, they will underwrite that so that you can put 10, 100 contractors out. And obviously what you're doing as a recruitment business is taking the cut of that for your true profits. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that um, maybe there needs to be some innovation there is um, the time to underwrite that contract takes a while in some instances, and it's quite old school. You have to meet with the person, they want to sell you their whole services. Uh, and what they tend to want to do is underwrite all of your business, whereas what you might prefer to do is be able to choose ad hoc invoices that you would like to factor. Because of course, if you factor them all, it comes at a percentage price across the board. Uh, other things that um, have struck me as um, not ideal is you will tend to get people who want to factor, let's say your contract book, but then they wouldn't factor your permanent book, which is a different game. It's a bigger invoice of let's say 50,000 for a fee. And it's taking quite a big cut. And often what they'll do is they'll wait until you've placed the candidate, the company has agreed the invoice. And so actually what you're really getting is say that money seven or 30 days in advance of what it could be. Whereas what would be appealing to that individual would be getting it three or four months in advance. But the risk underwriting is too risky for the factorer to do at that point. So for me, the innovation isn't ne necessarily te technological here. It's just somebody understanding the customer's need and saying, okay, well, we're gonna have some agility there and we're gonna provide this at pace and we're gonna we're gonna provide this with discretion. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly in recruitment, we we certainly see a lot of demand coming from that sector. And in some cases we fit really well, in some cases we don't. So in the cases we fit really well is we we serve invoices up to 15k. They are totally flexible. So it's invoice by invoice, and it's ultimately the buyer that decides. Yeah, I'm I, I would like to pay this in installments, and then the buyer gets paid up front. The best part about that is kind of what you say is that. The thing that, that we've heard before about other people who've used factoring, their biggest frustration as a supplier is say, well, yeah, you pay me up front, then you go chase my customer. They don't know who you are, so they don't love that. No. Then the customer doesn't pay, then I'm still on the hook. Oh, and by the way, I paid for the service. Yeah. Like, so it's like, it hasn't really solved the problem. It's great for cash flow. It's, it, it's, it, is, it does unlock the cash flow, but it doesn't really solve. You're still left with either collections or having somebody else do your collections without the customer necessarily knowing about it. It's still, um, it's it's still sort of a an effort on your yeah. side. There's still this risk that you hold. And Laura, so we're trying to find on, a way to make that non-recourse. On that point, um, that's true. As the relationship gets hand over to what looks like a factoring business to do the collections, you know, to, I mean, some people get it; it's fine, but sometimes it's not ideal. So, so, mm. so, what are you doing about that? 
So in this case, because the buyer during the purchase has to say, yes, I want to use pay, all of a sudden they have now a relationship with us. So they know they're going to be paying us. So it's not like someone they've never heard of. It's done with their consent saying, yeah, I want to spread the cost. I want to pay in installments. And therefore we work directly with the buyer. They know us, they have an account, they effectively sign up and then they can start using that with other vendors. Um, so we sort of say that, so that's kind of what, what makes it better in, in, that, in that way is that the relationship is upfront. You're not sort of blindsided by it later perhaps when the invoice is delayed, et cetera, et cetera. So, so if the I, other benefit we have, oh, sorry. So if I was thinking where this is practical in my business, um, it's those startup businesses where they're, they're not cash rich, but you know we think they're great and we're investing in them scaling. Um, and a fee might be just too, too expensive for them, right? So I would be able to say to that individual, um, it's cool, don't worry. The price is, in this instance, 10, 20,000 pounds. Let me introduce iWalker Bay to you. You can actually tranche that out, which would be better for your cash flow. You get the same premium service at the same pace. We get what we want, which is our fee. Voila. Yep, okay. exactly. And, and actually, one other benefit is that because we, we look at the at the buyer, um, so we look at your customer base, we actually are agnostic to the state of the invoice. So you could have said that, it, that invoice could be sent now, it could have been delayed, it could be overdue, whatever. We don't care. What we care about is the underlying, is, is the buyer um, and, and their situation. And because we're a, because we've kind of built our business to be experts at small business lending and small business finance, we, we really do understand that demographic better than most. Yeah. Um, and so we do get a lot of customers who can't get finance elsewhere, can get finance with us because we've kind of built this engine to do that much more comprehensive review of, um, of, of these customers. With them, um, that sounds great. So I love it. With them, um, very early phase FinTech, four or five years ago, um, the credit risk was incredibly immature, right? So I've got a big background in um, credit risk in particular teams. And, you know, I walked around, definitely not iWalker, but similar types of businesses and their credit risk divisions were a couple of people using their discretion. And the website was talking about artificial intelligence making these wonderful decisions for them. And fair play, you know, these businesses acted big and uh, in, in many instances have stepped up to it. But when I think of, you know, we're talking $475 million invested into iWalker or something like that. And with credit providers, you never know how much of that's going on the team or how much of that's going on to be able to lend, right? So I get that numbers, sounds big. I, I, I would love you to explain to me how intelligent the technology, the risk decision systems actually genuinely are right now to allow you to make these decisions better than traditional banks. So one of the things I think that, that I was very impressed by um, when I joined Iwaka is not just the ability to consume and understand data, but actually Iwaka's kind of underwriting philosophy is built on the idea that machines are really good at some things and humans are really good at some things. And so we have to be able to blend the benefit of machines and humans. And so what, we've, what that basically means is that we've got this progressively automated underwriting process to, under, to truly understand businesses. 
And so, for example, our machines help us do things like consume lots and lots of data, recognize patterns in data without necessarily um, introducing new bias. Whereas a human, whereas a machine's really bad at, for example, uh, client concentration risk. So a machine will look at a business and say, oh, you've only got one customer, you must be terrible. But a human will look at that business and say, wait a minute, but that one customer is the NHS. It's a great customer. And so we'll be able to understand the kind of the nuance there between what, um, what's, what the credit risk is. And so with our underwriting process, that's kind of one of our, our secret sauces, how we're able to not just take data and go, oh, we're, we're the best because we can you know, consume. We looked at your Facebook profile or whatever which we don't, <laughs> um, but like, which is actually something that people kind of said in the early days. Remember social media, it's all gonna be about social media credit. Okay, for us, it's much more taking the data about what your business is and who you are. And as much as it's useful, finding smart ways to consume it, but then also blending in that, that human part. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of for us, what, 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 I, what I think is so impressive about our, our tech stack and our approach to risk. Yeah. So again, June 2020, um, you know, we're, we're kind of in the midst of um, just a phenomenal year when we look back at it in terms of um, COVID and, and just a, a, a lot of challenges for any, any business. And actually some of the businesses that have struggled were businesses who are doing really well and came into the year thinking, let's scale up, let's really go for it. And then because revenues aren't quite where revenues might have been. You know, you see, you see brilliant staff have been made redundant and let go and plans have obviously been leveled out. What has the journey been like with um, iWalker for, for internally iWalker, um, but also for the customer base? Yeah, I mean, you know, none of us, I think, are, were, were fully anticipating a, a pandemic and yeah. a economic shutdown of this size. Um, and one of the things I would say I'm pretty proud of um, from our Walker's perspective is how quickly we adapted, um, both in terms of internally moving to moving to remote working um, while ensuring that we're keeping that quality of service as best we can to customers. Now, of course, immediately um, our customers were hit. And so a lot of the work that we did in the early days um, was trying to amplify and make aware the opportunities and the uh, tools the government was, was putting out. So whether that was C-bills, BBL, um, uh, information about sole traders, information about who was offering, where you could get finance, um, as well as advocating um, to the government to ensure that fintechs were very much part of this conversation because we could get um, liquidity into the market and much needed liquidity into the market. Um, and so that was kind of a really important part about us and now we are a C-Bills accredited lender and working hard to kind of make that finance available using, using our platform and, and making it available as fast as we possibly can. Um, this is, it, it's hard, it's, it's not good. And one thing that you know, we, we are encouraged by is, is the government is putting their priorities in the right place in terms of getting, the, getting liquidity into the market, but there's lots more that can be done. Yeah. And, and making that, 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 that liquidity available is, is a key part of that. Um, and so that's kind of where we're spending a lot of our efforts is how can we use our platform and our technology to really give customers and give small businesses the much needed liquidity um, to shore up their cash flows for the next few months. With um, the small businesses that you guys have got a real vantage point of, um, what are you seeing out there if we talk about the differences between sectors, um, the ones that you think are maybe thriving, the ones that are, are really struggling? What's the macro view? 
I think everyone has been hit in some way. So we, we put out a report um, leveling the paying field. And one of the things we want to look at is, is where, um, what businesses, how, how businesses are adapting and what their outlook is and their attitude during this conflict. And, um, and we, we certainly, not the first to kind of bring this up, but there are absolutely questions around solvency and, and long-term um, long concerns about how, how long a business will be able to survive. Um, that, that said is that we've also been kind of, it's been interesting to see small businesses adapt. Um, either they are going into new sectors, they are moving into more online, um, they're moving into delivery mode. Uh, so there are some green shoots. It's actually really been hard to anticipate who does what um, and how and how these businesses are adapting because it's 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 you know there's such a diversity of of business type and such a diversity of um, of skill sets and so it's 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 un, it's not easy to sort of say you know this industry is doing well this is not I think there are some obvious exceptions so travel of course is getting hit really quite hard um, and uh, sort of restaurants in varying degrees are getting hit quite hard and so it will be a question of how quickly these are able to bounce back and, and, and kind of come back to market as lockdown eases, as the pandemic sort of, we get better controls around um, what, what, what we can and can't do in this new economy. I think one thing it does do is, is really push us to learn how to adapt, you know, especially businesses are kind of thinking about what happens if a second wave comes, yep. how well prepared am I for that? What yep. can I do? Um, and I think that's one area that we've been trying to kind of put out more content, show examples, show case studies of how other small businesses have adapted and made themselves, you know, more future future proofed, yeah. if you will. Um, but it's still it we're still on shaky ground, and it's still something that that small businesses need as much support in the in the short term to help navigate this. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's a century kind of event. Um, this, is, this is something we, we really hope we will get through it and, and be really strong on the other side, um, but it's, it's certainly much worse and it'll be, it'll be tough for, for a while longer. Um, you know, a lot of the guests who've come onto the show um, were um, drawn to fintech from um, the previous crisis. And, you know, we've had kind of fintech version one over the last several years since. And then, of course, you know, we're going through another um, dramatic um, period of time where it's not, um, you know, directed at finance, it's just across everything. Um, and, um, you know, of course, the hope and, and, and certainly when you look at Iwaka, the, the, the thing that looks like it's going to happen is that some of those fintechs that are set up and enable digital access um, to, to, to companies in your instance to, to finance, the benefit is absolutely there visually. And now with the government supporting and backing you and the partnerships that are created and the innovations you guys are making, you know, FinTech two, the next phase, just um, feels like it's gonna be incredibly exciting. And you're obviously at the, the front of that. So I'm sure the yeah. re reasons that you got into it yeah, and actually, I mean, you're seeing it already, uh, you know, early on, especially with C-bills, it was, it was quite, um, when it was just banks, the the bottleneck was already apparent. And actually, as fintechs have been able to um, uh, to kind of help drive that, I mean, it's there's just already a very strong relationship. So, um, you know, yeah. fintechs have the ability to scale fast. Um, and as a group, including other non-bank SME lenders, they're kind of, we are, we were already supporting more than 400,000 micro and small businesses. And that's 
you know, about a third of all SMEs. So yeah. it's, it's a growing base. And that platform is really critical, um, you know, in, in our, um, in how we develop and how FinTech 2.0 comes about. Yeah. I think it's going to be a really important player. Um, this, this sector, this development in the sector is going to be critical to kind of how the economy develops as a whole. Yeah. And I think, Laura, the um, point that that brings me on to is, you know, um, one of the theories around, around where like the best creativity is drawn from can actually be when things are in a box or when there's a crisis. And um, I wanted to open up the conversation for Mimi to um, talk to you um, about um, some of your background and some of the things that you're seeing in, um, in this box of creativity. Um, so Mimi, perhaps if you could uh, fire away. Yeah, um, I just wanted to go back maybe to your like, as Lloyd started, like what brought you to fintech because like what you're doing is it's, it's it's clearly like you want to make a change that's why we're talking about fintech 2.0 the one coming um and really helping smes and i remember um echoing i remember this um this motto like helping one million businesses i mean that was even when i was still um there in 2016 uh before i left and so so what was the thing that brought you to fintech uh at the first place yeah, so I um, I've been in. It wasn't called fintech <laughs> when I when I started. I didn't I didn't know until about four years in that I was working in fintech. Um, so I started working on mobile money. So mobile money is a mobile network operators, and, and maybe people are familiar with with, with um, businesses such as M-Pesa in Kenya um, is kind of the most most famous example, but certainly not the only one. Is Orange Money across across Africa um, and Asia? There is a number of you know uh, Wing in in um, in Myanmar, et cetera, or Wing in Cambodia, and um, uh, there's lots uh, of of mobile money providers out there now. Um, but mobile money, what, what effect was happening is how can you use your existing um, GSM, your mobile network operator base, your coverage base for people who have mobile phones to offer to offer a digital payment solution. And that started with remittance and now is obviously getting more into mm -hmm. a broader ecosystem of, of financial services. So I spent five years working with mobile network operators to set up these kind of uh, new businesses. And it really was, was FinTech. It was quite funny kind of starting to look at the UK and everyone's like, oh, it's so great. You can have a bank account in your phone. It's like, oh. And have it in Kenya for like seven or eight years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, that, that it's the same with Vietnam. Like in Vietnam, when I was back 10 years ago, everyone had like at least two phones, mobile phones, but no bank accounts. That was like a specifics of these countries. Yeah, it's true. And actually a big part of it, and, and Vietnam falls in the category, is, is how open your regulation is. And actually that's true for fintech in general. You know, one of the big benefits in, in Europe um, and in lots of Africa and in lots of Asia is um, how this kind of test and learn approach to policy when it comes to, to financial innovation and making finance more accessible. Um, it's a huge part. I mean, the FCA plays, you know, with the sandbox, with um, with the kind of passporting opportunities, the regulation really can drive innovation. And I think you see like why Europe in some ways is ahead of the US, um, while the regulatory barriers and like just sort of the, the, what you need to do to be set up across different states, et cetera, just, just makes it just a little bit harder in, in some ways to kind of start that early stage. Now, say FinTech in the US is doing fine and will continue to kind of um, uh, drive innovation, but, uh, but compared to kind of the regulatory and the policy landscape it's my impression is that it is um there's a healthy desire to work with providers 
to understand how is how is this innovation gonna gonna evolve. Um, and I think that's quite that's a huge enabler, and that certainly was a huge enabler for for mobile money in particular. And um, but you asked me after, yeah, yeah. Sorry, going back. Sorry, I've got sidetracked. Um, so I did that for five years, and it was the thing that I focused on the most was how do you build and develop products that seem weird and different and make them useful for people um and especially when and i found finance such this really exciting opportunity in particular because it's you know you've got sort of you know this critical service that can have a huge impact on someone's life um it can you know make them part of you know in some cases can bring them into the formal economy it can um, reduce a lot of the risks it can give them access to new services um, it's such a it's such a meaningful um, it has so many benefits and, and brings true you know value to users that I love being part of that problem equally it's also the one that people are only going to use if they truly believe that you're going to do well by them they need to trust it they need to understand it, it needs to be transparent and to be frank the history of banking and um, you know financial services hasn't always been that transparent and certainly hasn't always been that accessible it's not really been built for everyone and so one of the things i think that was really interesting both in mobile money and you certainly see that coming true in fintechs is how do we just make this much more useful and relevant for users and how do we explain products how do we develop products how do we iterate on products in a way that, that the customer is a is is not just this thing we have to deal with but actually where the solutions really land with them and so that's kind of what i what i was those kind of problem statements were always so fascinating to me and so that's very much also what i kind of have been doing um, with iwaka and and kind of thinking about how we've got this amazing engine we know what it can do the question is, where else are we in a good position to help solve new problems for customers? And um, and the link is quite interesting because I, I mentioned this previously that I kind of found Iwaka through um, through Seema Desai, uh, who was my old boss at the GSMA, where we were working on mobile money together. And she kind of brought me in, and there's a lot of that same, you know, she had the same sort of view. Like this is a place where we're solving exciting new problems, and um, at that that are meaningful and that kind of can create real value. And, uh, and yeah, I couldn't, you know, couldn't turn that down. So you're from the referral. Yeah, yes, I'm, I, I was, I was in, in, in the, uh, in that one network. <laughs> yeah, I remember Sima actually sending an email um, for referrals actually to all the alumni. I'm like, oh, can you refer someone? So, so you're one of the, <laughs> the network. Yeah, well, <laughs> I just, I'm starting to become like a Sima groupie, which is, uh, <laughs> Um, Laura, when you when you talk about um, you know what what excites you, which clearly is it's a great match being at Iwaka, um, it'd be really awesome to like drill into like where you where you got these value propositions from. You sound like an incredibly motivated person who knows what you want, uh, which which is which is quite rare, <laughs> and uh, that's what we're trying to do with searching for Mana is. Um, you know, get this type of profile onto the show so that people can certainly learn about their journey. And um, perhaps we could go back um, through yours. Um, so um, could you take us to, you know, a place in your background, it could be preschool, whatever it is, where you really connected with thinking about what you wanted to do in, uh, in your career? 
yeah, it's a good it's a good question because I don't think it was that strategic. Um, so I, for me, I never really had a five year plan. I, I still don't. Um, I I really I found that actually quite a lot of pressure to sort of know what it, where, the direction I wanted to go. So you know, as a kid, I would like bounce between I'm going to be an astronaut to like I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a chef. <laughs> it would just be kind of. Um, kind of sort of funny the one thing I'd say is growing up my um so I started actually my career the only you know I grew up with a, a military father and a flight attendant mom and so kind of bounced around quite a bit and I love that so all I wanted to do was just like keep being in new places mm. and so I didn't really care what it was I didn't care what sector I that you know whatever as long as I could travel and and kind of go places that that I had never seen or understood or just seemed completely foreign to me I was I was totally up for it and so that kind of um, brought me eventually to a, a firm in Boston, which was called um, Associates for International Research, Air Inc. And basically my first job was a um, professional scavenger hunter. We literally went around the world um, and priced goods so that when companies relocated their employees, we, we provide them with, with really sophisticated and, and quite tailored um, sort of expat allowances. And that was a huge kind of cost saving for them to understand exactly how do you, you know, what is it going to cost me to kind of relocate this person? And it was... Amazing. Um, but one the thing that that job kind of gave me at that point was like this desire to a keep seeing new places and keep meeting lots of different people and, and you know, eating lots of different food and like trying to hunt for things, but it also kind of laid this research base. And that's kind of where I sort of say, like, at the core of my career has always been sort of unbeknownst to me, has always been this kind of underlying desire to to research and to like just studying and understanding and and so research very much became part of my toolkit there um, and from there I, I kind of went on and uh, sort of went to INSEAD where I did a lot of work on strategy and and really at the core strategy is just keep asking questions keep researching and kind of developing more, yeah. more why, toolkit there and why did and why did you um let's go to that point and, and think about why you chose to go take a, an MBA. We've had mm. a number of guests. Um, I think Dora from Asimo uh, might have even been uh, at Seattle at the same time. I think I think she I think she was. Yeah. That you were there. She she was a very early episode, and she talked us through you know what's going on in her corporate career, why she thought it would be a good idea to go there, and then what the benefits of going there was. Could you perhaps do the same? Yeah, sure. And, and, I, and I should say, um, I love INSEAD. It was the right choice for me. Um, an MBA is great. It's not great for everyone, nor do I think it's absolutely necessary. There's lots of different ways you can get that experience. The reason it was so wonderful for me was a couple of things. One is I really wanted to get out of the US. I was really excited to kind of take a much more global position. So Air Inc. was a great place to kind of start to get that exposure. But, yep. um, but I wanted to... I, I knew I didn't want to, to do expat allowances forever. It was fun, it's great. Uh, but I knew I wanted to kind of uh, push myself a bit more. And, and something I kind of was really excited about was also looking at emerging market development. So, so it kind of became a question of how do I, I needed to make a career move that was both sector, geography, and skill. And so that's very hard to do without some kind of middle step. And so INSEAD for me was that middle step where I could kind of build a couple of things. Like one, I could build my skill base so I get more exposure to the tools um, about uh, business strategy, business development, uh, finance, and just build a much stronger base. I was really good at researching and I was really good at some sort of you know, basic analysis, but, but when it came to kind of putting that into a broader, bigger picture, I didn't, that, didn't have that skill at the time. 
Um, so it was one. The second thing was network. It allowed me kind of get this much more global network and, and, and an MBA, basically it's a huge thing it does. It, it connects you into this kind of group of people who are, who are really strong. Yeah. Um, and then third, it got me out of the US. So that was just awesome. And I love that INSEAD had this, has this, um, uh, this rule that no one nationality can represent more than 10% of the class. And for me at the time, that was just like the greatest. It was sort of a world, the, the, a playground of the world. Um, and that was true in that class. So in my, uh, in my group, it was, it was me. It was a trader from Greece. It was a uh, aeronautical engineer who was Norwegian Turkish. Um, it was a woman from China who had done brand for L'Oreal. And it was um, a, uh, uh, an engineer who uh, was uh, from New Caledonia. So like, I mean, this is like whatever, more than 10 years ago. And these people like, have had such a huge impact on my, on my career and my life and my thinking. It was just great. Like it was such, I would never have gotten that somewhere else for, for what, and for what I was looking for, which is more global, more um, develop my skill set, and kind of widen my network. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was awesome. Nora, do you think, because um, what you are talking about there, um, you know, really relates to a lot of people who like to soak up cultures and, you know, be like a sponge and absorb the best things from those cultures and people. Um, are you like that outside of work as well, or do you actually kind of combine that? Do, do you know, are those people you met um, at NCAD still your peer group and it's social and business? Are you, are you one of the, you know, kind of, uh, I find the, the great networkers manage to combine their outside and inside of um, business? Um, I, I, I think so. Um... I, I the definitely, so definitely my, my NCI network is uh, among, the, you know, I still among my closest friends um, and, uh, but, but not just them. I, I think I get really excited about, about shared, because actually I would say like sort of random, I, I'm also part of a, of a kayaking club in London and actually that's my like other base and I love it because it's also like a completely different group of people who have completely different jobs and, um, and kind of bring, like, I like going anywhere where I'm going to find people who don't think just like me, but probably have one thing in common. So it's like one thing we know we love. And then there's like 500 other things that we're going to see completely differently. Where, where, are, you, where are you kayaking in London? Um, so uh, it's, it's Regents Canoe Club. And actually they're probably going to be, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being ridiculous because I haven't been super active recently. So if I haven't listened to it, they who might be she, like, who does she think she is? I, yeah, I haven't seen her in months. And I'll be like, oh. <laughs> but, but it's still a big part of my, my community. And, and I, and I love it because you just, I like that diversity of, of thought. And actually that's, that's a big thing that I walk at too, just like really push of what does diversity of thought mean and how do we get to a good idea? Because if we just hire people that look like us or act like us or are like us, it gets really banal and bland and not innovative really quickly. And so that's probably something that's been really consistent in my career. Just like, I just want to see how other people see things. And, 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 and you, um, see, so you do things like kayaking um to spice it up outside of work and um what else are you doing where you're trying to absorb culture and knowledge like you're traveling a lot you're reading a lot to try and help us visualize that i mean i think i think maybe you can back me up on this when you work for a startup or a scale up that does become an all-consuming part of your life so so that is what i do a lot of um yeah. i work a lot uh, but also working somewhere where you're really excited about what you're working on the problem um that's a uh, that's kind of a big part of it. But then it also comes into a question of, of, you know, who are the people who I'm surrounded by and they are, and they are 
kind of all different all different shapes and sizes and all different kinds and I and I love that part of it um but I do try to also make time to sort of step out of that um more and that's where uh, you know this this sort of kayaking group that I that I also hang out with are kind of wonderful because you know they don't care about SME finance they don't you know they talk about different things and but it allows my brain to just sort of see what else is going on in the world and sort of um and and I think it's kind of the same like yeah reading of course is I know that's always one of the secrets of success for everyone and and I do I do I read um but I'm also actually I I love when people recommend books to kind of oh we should see this and I'll see it in a different way I think that's kind of uh yeah cool what I love about oh sorry you you um you said you said that one of the things that you love and um, have a skill set in is research um Mm. how do you hire for somebody who needs to be excellent at research because a lot of people would imagine they enjoy researching we, we live in a world of, of google right um what are the things that make somebody good at research professionally yeah so it's a good, actually good question because um one of the things that that we did when i joined is um kind of with our uh with our cmo and with our head of design we, we wanted to build in an in-house research function we now have a, have a head of research and a, re- and a research team um a qualitative research team so it kind of depends can research can be lots of different things lots of different people so from a purely technical perspective um people are different often people will specialize in different elements of research and so it kind of depends on what you're looking for so for me what i really like it is i love the synthesis stage um i the things i like i like to make sure we're asking the right question and how the question's structured and then what is the hypothesis i'm trying to test and am i going to get that and can i bring that into coherent kind of so what that's that's the part I love the stuff that I I have to work at is like um what is the you know how do we segment or how are we is 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 this the right methodology should it be qual should it be quant is this an a b test how do we want to think about that and so a lot of people kind of go there and say well I understand what you're trying to get to but you know the way in which you're getting there you're not optimizing for and so when I kind of look whenever I look for someone, actually, this is beyond research, whenever I look for someone in its team, it's much more like, what are the skills that we don't have? Or what are we trying to build on? What are they and and what do they love doing? Um, And what part of that problem are they going to be helpful in solving? And so I'll try to be really conscientious around, okay, what do we really need? And can we give this person the, the opportunity to be successful? And so when we're thinking about research, what we really needed was someone to bring in you know, excellence on qualitative research. Um, I walk as a data business, we were excellent on the quant side. Our analytics is, is, is very impressive. What we needed was to blend that with some of the why and the qual and, and, and bringing that part of the research, developing that part, which we, which we had, but we were doing much more ad hoc and we wanted to kind of bring that, make that more systemic and make that much more part of, the, part of all of our decision-making. And so we looked for someone who could help us develop that. And, and that's kind of where we are today much more um, uh, blending the qual and the quant so that we can really get a full picture of our, of our users and, and not just what they're doing and their behaviors, which, which analytics gives us a lot of, but also how they're thinking and feeling and their perceptions. And that just allows you to really kind of round out that, um, that it gives you a much wider, let's say data set or insights to be able to make decisions based off of. Yeah, I, I also agree. I think I, I the CMO you mentioned was actually my previous boss, and he was so quant. Uh, I mean, so we were in a in a marketing team, and 
some of my colleagues also. So we came kind of with very quant background. So like he was statistician, I, I was kind of, and he, the, the, the boss was like astrophysics from, from Cambridge. And although we were doing marketing, so everyone was thinking like, yeah, you guys design cups, but no, but actually uh, my colleague was trained through all SQL up to his now machine learning actually development in aerospace um, sector. So it was very hardcore marketing in terms of uh, statistics, in terms of, as you say, A-B testing, like very, uh, very quant so that we make sure that whatever we say is backed in a way, like almost backed by science, backed by research. And, and that also relates back to thing that you said uh, with reading. I mean, I remember like we, we used to just ping each other in the office, like, oh, that's a good book for your reading. And that was like a good blend of your interest and work. As you say, like when you work for a startup, you work very hard, but that was very, very rewarding uh, in a way that if you work just three times more than anyone else, then you learn in three months. The amount of knowledge that you get is the same as someone other, uh, some other person during the year. And that was the pace of, of learning, getting experience in, in the startup world in, in Awoka was so fast and that mm. was in another way so rewarding. And the interest was just just blend together. So so we went hiking together. I remember we went uh, actually skiing for weeks or kind of mixing of interest, hobbies and working in the same time. And uh, a lot of my hobbies actually came out from that period because someone shot out in the, in the company that signed up to a marathon and none of us were runners. And, uh, and two of us actually got, got into a ballot and we ran a London marathon. And, and since then, <laughs> I'm a runner. And everyone is like, why are you a runner? It's like, because someone in Iwaka told me to sign up. And that just stayed. <laughs> First of all, I can't believe you got, I, I've been entering that stupid lottery for years. <laughs> yeah, so it, was the first, it was the first race I applied uh, to. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> And then I, yeah, and I had to run it at the end. But yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to talk to the Tokyo now for the last four years. So I, I feel your pain. <laughs> All right, good, good. <laughs> Laura, maybe you can, um, you can kayak a marathon distance. <laughs> oh, no, so, so I, I, I should clarify, because anyways, I'm, I'm not a, I'm a totally fine pub standard kayaker, but um, I like whitewater kayaking specifically because oh, um, cool. it's very fast. And actually, it's a lot more about balance and timing than necessarily um, endurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds fun. Um, Laura, um, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to leave um, leave talking to the audience about? Um, oh, this is a good question. I think I, I think for me, like one of the things that that you know, when you start looking at what you want your career to be, or where you think you should go. I think just starting about what, what are your needs today? So what are the skill sets you want to develop or what are the um, what are the kind of things that get you really excited? That's that's good enough. Like don't worry about am I gonna, you know, this is where I want to be in five or 10 or 15 years. I think for me taking that pressure off and just saying, okay, cool, I kind of want to head this direction. And if that's fun, I'll keep doing it and I'll keep getting better and I'll keep growing and I'll keep pushing myself. And if it's not fun, or if I'm finding it much like it's not feeding me in the way that I hoped it would, okay, I'll adapt and yeah. I'll change. And I think that kind of, um, that sort of approach has been, yeah, I really, it's worked really well for me, but it just meant I had much more of an open mind about like, where could I go next? And, and what was that going to give me to kind of, you know, either give me more of a skill set or give me more exposure to something new. Yeah, absolutely powerful. And I think what comes across 
and as a, as an observer from both you know Mimi and you Lara who've been at different ends of the journey with Iwaka is um, is that exact point right you can see how passionate you both are about learning soaking up experiences being part of something that's doing uh, something with purpose and what's really nice here is that you know as long as you like understand good karma then it can all come full circle and you know that's what's really nice about this show is that we've had the chance for you know Mimi and you to talk about uh, Iwaka with similar passion um, albeit you know Mimi's doing something different right now. Mimi would you like to um, say anything to close the show out to the audience? Yeah, I just wanted to push uh, for some referrals because Lara mentioned she, she came actually from CIMA. And uh, I just wanted to ask if, uh, if your professor from INSEAD, did you have, uh, was it Jan Perro? <laughs> uh, oh, Chief, yeah, I, I didn't actually have him as a professor, but I am well aware of his um, reputation and was always envious of everyone else who, who did have him. Because, yeah, yeah. I, yeah I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing or I'm not planning doing INSEAD, but I'm just tracking. <laughs> Um, the professor, there's Charles, who just um, who just published a new book, uh, Leadership uh, Backstage. Oh, and, cool! Uh, and yeah, so I just just thought that if, if you have anyone uh, from inside that you want to to recommend for the next uh, as a next guest for the podcast. Um, oh, actually, I'd say um, Horacio and Falco. Uh, he does negotiations, and it was uh, to date like still I I, the, I if you ever can get a chance to get him to talk, he's an exceptionally um, gifted professor. And certainly, especially in this context, how, like we talked a lot about negotiation and negotiating with a new business is, is a big part of, um, of kind of recruitment and career development. But, but even more generally, he takes it into a much more win-win um, negotiation style. So yeah, if you could ever get him to talk, he's excellent. Great, amazing. Thank you so much. But always, always selling, always selling, Mimi. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much. Cheers. Please do visit us at manasearch.co.uk. At Mana, we find fintech talent by filling the gap between the archaic search firms and the voluminous recruitment firms we are connected with the best talent within fintech we conjure our headhunting skills to search and find the mana of the best teams please get in touch to find out how we can connect you with the very best talent in the market all that's left for me to say is thanks once again for your support take care stay safe and see you very soon on searching for mana with lloyd warhead